0: You can subscribe to my Substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. And you can give a one-time donation or a recurring donation through PayPal to Jihad at gmail.com. That's truthjihad, the two words run together, at gmail.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here bringing on most interesting people I can find who have something unusual, interesting, or provocative to say that isn't the usual corporate mainstream media pablum. And today I'm bringing back the maybe the most important guy in the alternative media. I would um, probably make that argument, and other people would too. That's Ron Unz, publisher of the Unz Review. And he is now not just a cyber author, (laughs) but also a regular author with uh, two new books that just came out, I don't know, just hours ago or I don't know how long ago. Um, and we'll talk about those and about what's going on right now in the world. Uh, so hey, welcome, Ron. How are you? Hey, fine. Great to be here. So you, you just published uh, a piece explaining why you hadn't been publishing anything for a little while. And, uh, you s- summed up the COVID situation and, uh, mentioned your take on it and, uh, how mystified you are that the evidence that you've uncovered that COVID was likely a U.S. neocon bioattack on China and Iran has simply kind of been lurking at the margins, racking up rumble views, <laughs> hasn't penetrated the mainstream yet. Uh, so maybe we could start there and, and uh, quickly summarize the points you made in that article.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, it really—the whole situation is really quite bizarre from my perspective. I mean, we're talking the the COVID outbreak. I mean, uh, according to the most recent World Health Organization estimates, probably killed about 15 million people around the world. And actually, The Economist based on excess deaths, thinks that the figure might even be closer to 20 million. And, you know, it's killed a million Americans, at least a million Americans now officially, and probably the numbers are a little bit higher than that. So we're talking about a gigantic world event. I mean, it's disrupted the lives of billions of people around the world. Most Americans spent the better part of two years in lockdowns. Our economy has been turned upside down. You know, we ended up having a mass vaccination campaign with all these com- controversial vaccines, new technology vaccines. And so, I mean, we're talking about a global event, probably more important than anything that has happened since the Second World War. And despite the huge loss of life and tremendous impact on the world, there seems a tremendous reluctance to actually explore the underlying reasons. For the outbreak, in other words, what caused it? And uh, the two theories that have been go- that really have gone back and forth since the beginning are, you know, obviously the original theory, which was that it was a natural virus, simply something that crossed over from an animal species randomly and just popped up in a totally unexpected sort of way. And then, uh, for about the last year, there's been quite a lot of talk of the lab leak hypothesis which is the notion that the virus came, was genetically engineered in a lab somewhere, and then leaked out of a lab accidentally, probably the Wuhan lab in the city of Wuhan, which is where the virus first appeared. So, you know, those are basically the two ideas that have been discussed. But from the very beginning, for more than two years, it's been seemed to me very obvious that there was a clearly a third possibility that should be considered, you know, a much more shocking and horrifying possibility than either of those, and that's simply that the viral epidemic was caused by a deliberate biowarfare attack. In other words, if we recognize, it seems increasingly likely, that the virus came from a laboratory, it was a human-produced virus, genetically engineered virus, then you know, it's possible that it leaked from a lab somewhere, but it's also very possible that it was deliberately released. And it seems to me that the evidence that it was deliberately released, and in particular deliberately released by elements of the American national security establishment as a deliberate attack against China and against Iran, seems very, very compelling, and I've been writing articles pointing to those facts and making the case for well over two years now, and it just seems very strange that there's such tremendous reluctance, both in the mainstream media and even the alternative media, to even simply consider that possibility. Now, you know, again, the facts are very straightforward. America was in the middle of a tremendous geopolitical confrontation with China. At the time, the virus appeared. In other words, China was regarded as our number one international adversary. We're we're in a terrible trade war with China. There were, even back then, noises about possibly war breaking out over Taiwan. So we have a situation where America's leading geopolitical adversary was suddenly struck down by a mysterious virus that at the time seemed it had a very good possibility of spreading throughout the entire country of China and devastating the Chinese economy. And very soon after the virus originally appeared in Wuhan, it suddenly jumped 3,500 miles to the holy city of Gom in Iran and ended up uh, uh, infecting. Iran's political and religious elites 10% of the entire Iranian parliament was affected some of the top Iranian leaders died of COVID and all of that occurred the uh, the um, viral epidemic among Iran's top political religious leadership occurred just a few weeks after America had assassinated General Soleimani Iran's top military leader So we have a situation where the two countries in the world that America was most hostile towards at that moment in time were China and Iran. And both of them were almost simultaneously struck down by a mysterious virus that many people now believe was produced in a laboratory, a genetically engineered virus. So just on the face of it, the fact that virtually no one anywhere simply raised the possibility, merely the possibility, of the viral epidemic being a biowarfare attack seems really quite shocking to me. I mean, again, it's not something – I'm not talking about hard proof based on what I've said so far, but simply raising the possibility. America, over the decades, America, Americans may or may not be aware of it in many cases, but America has the world's oldest, longest-standing biowarfare program going back to the middle of the Second World War. It's been around for nearly 80 years now. America has probably spent about $100 billion developing its biowarfare technology.
0: So if we're not attacking China and Iran, we're not getting our money's worth.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's the sort of thing. When, when a country has the world's leading biowarfare system, that they've invested $100 billion in producing, and at a point of international confrontation with China and Iran, Suddenly, China and Iran are both almost simultaneously struck by a mysterious virus that seems to have come from a laboratory somewhere. I mean, those are obviously the possibilities that have to be explored. And, you know, the whole thing about it is then when you look at some of the other evidence, as I started digging into it, you know, in February and March and April – and uh, 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 you know one another very clear example is in 2017 one of america's leading biowarfare advocates for decades has been a man named robert Cadillac. he's been writing about biowarfare since the late 1990s arguing that biowarfare is a uniquely effective means of surreptitiously Damaging or debilitating an international rival because it allows plausible deniability, in other words, there is usually no proof you bio- you launched a biological attack against your adversary while you can do your adversary tremendous damage so anyway, Donald Trump hired brought uh, Robert Cadlock into his administration at a senior level in two thousand and seventeen then in two thousand and eighteen. China's poultry industry was mysteriously attacked by a virus, a viral epidemic, avian flu, that devastated one of China's main food sources, poultry. Then in early 2019, uh, another mysterious viral epidemic hit China again, this time devastating China's pork industry. It's pig herds. 40% of all the pigs in China had to be destroyed. These were exactly the sort of food source potential biowarfare attacks that Cadillac had been advocating in his writings since the late 1990s. So we have a situation where basically Cadillac is brought into the administration in 2017. In 2018, a mysterious viral epidemic devastates China's poultry industry. In early 2019, another mysterious viral epidemic devastates China's pork industry. And then in late 2019... Suddenly, a viral epidemic, a respiratory virus that is deadly to humans, appears in the city of Wuhan, timed so that it would spread invisibly during the Chinese New Year holidays a few months later and potentially infect the entire country. And there's more than that. During From January to August 2019, Robert Cablack, our chief biowarfare advocate, ran something called the Crimson Contagion Exercise in the United States. For eight months, he worked with federal and state authorities on how America could protect itself from infection of a dangerous respiratory virus if such a virus suddenly hypothetically appeared in China. Two months after the end of that long exercise, a virus of exactly those characteristics, the COVID virus, appeared in China. I mean, what is the coincidence? Coincidence theorists are having
0: a field day, or they would be having a field day if anybody noticed these coincidences. Exactly.
1: And, you know, when when you hear something called the Crimson Contagion Exercise, run by America's chief biowarfare advocate, it sounds like some crazy conspiracy crackpot idea that you saw somewhere in the fringes of the Internet. The way I found out about it is there was a front-page story in the New York Times describing the exercise and all the details about it. So, you know, I mean, the fact that all of this evidence is in plain sight, that you can get it by looking at the front page of the New York Times, and yet almost nobody in the alternative media has simply focused on this evidence is really shocking to me. And, you know, it's the sort of thing I I just, I mean, it could be people are simply very nervous about I mean, it's one thing to accuse, for example, Donald Trump of sending out nasty tweets at 2 a.m. to insult people or, you know, for example, making crude remarks. But I mean, we're talking about a situation where there's quite a lot of evidence. That the individuals that Donald Trump hired in his administration were responsible for a biowarfare attack against China and Iran, that then leaked back into the United States and has killed over a million Americans. I mean, it's just—you know—we're talking about one of the most horrific events in all of American history, and you know, it just—it's unbelievable that so few people are willing to even consider the whole thing well of course and, it's probably know.
0: because it is so horrific that that it makes it harder for them to consider it just like with 9-11 of course 9-11 itself was obviously not nearly as horrific as all kinds of other mass slaughters including those that our tax dollars pay for almost all the time but uh the tv images and indeed the, the you know three nearly 3,000 deaths all at once practically in buildings being blown up like that was so horrific in terms of its emotional effect on people that it became very, very difficult for people to face the evidence that, indeed, this had been uh, a false flag operation from within the U.S., uh, perhaps its uh, its partners. And likewise, I think with COVID, it's more, far more horrific, as you say, in terms of the number killed. And I think that's precisely the reason why it can be so easily hidden in plain sight.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you can imagine a lot of people simply being, you know, very, very, Nervous or cautious about making accusations of such a monumental magnitude. I mean, uh, you know, again, our daily lives of virtually all Americans have been disrupted now for two years. A million Americans have died. And when you look at, for example, the very strong evidence that it was due to an illegal American bio warfare attack, again, with Donald Trump almost certainly being unaware of what was going on, he was sort of running, he was out to lunch in most of his administration. But I mean, the people he hired were probably responsible for it. And so, you know, when you're talking about something like that, it could be it's simply considered too big a story, even for people in the alternative media to consider. Though, you know, as you mentioned during the introduction, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing back in February, I finally started doing a few uh, actually video interviews notably with you and with other people also and it's just been very heartening that those you know video interviews have now gotten close to 500,000 views despite the fact that all of the discussion you know the focus of attention has shifted so dramatically to the Russian war with Ukraine so you know it's clear we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people have watched these discussions and you know presumably some of them basically are starting to think, well, why aren't other people in the media talking about it? And I mean, the truth is, a a number of people I do know in the alternative media have privately dropped me notes commending my articles, have sort of basically certainly been very encouraging and supportive, but, I mean, they're just very cautious about saying anything themselves. And so, you know, it's just a very strange situation when you have, you know, what I regard as... A lot of very doubtful theories floating around that, you know, the idea that Bill Gates wants to exterminate the human race or something like that using vaccines, while on the other hand, there seems to be very clear and substantial evidence that, you know, when the two countries America is most hostile towards are both hit by mysterious viruses that probably came from a laboratory, it doesn't take a lot of effort to connect the dots together and to, you know, see that likely result is that, you know, America was devastated as a consequence. And not only that, but I mean, our European allies were devastated, probably 4 million or 5 million Indians have died from the virus. I mean, we're talking about a gigantic geopolitical event that certainly will rank among probably the most important developments of the last 100 years. And then, when you look at the evidence that it probably was an American bio warfare attack, and the fact that almost nobody's willing to, you know, raise that question, I, it's just quite surprising. And, you know, a number of people have told me that once they actually see the evidence for the first time, they really find it quite compelling. And, you know, they're really almost surprised that they'd never seen it before
0: anywhere. And um, I.
1: The whole story is really a strange one to me.
0: Yeah, me too. Now, uh, one of the areas where my listeners, or some of them, have questioned a little bit uh, your hypothesis, which I largely would accept, uh, is that they wonder about the, the blowback aspect being how this got out of control and affected the world, and then especially the West so powerfully. And they often point to other signs of different kinds of agencies, and especially those in the WHO and environments having been aware that this was going to happen or was likely to happen. And it occurs to me that there are some parallels with what happened uh, in the early days of nuclear weapons when the U.S. had a nuclear monopoly, and a certain group of uh, scientists and others on the U.S. side actually realized that the U.S. might very well use these weapons if it had the monopoly and that it actually would be better to get the Soviets (laughs) some nuclear weapons as well. And they they went about doing that. And so you had sort of two different groups at that time with this this new and powerful weapon. And and the one group just was the patriots who just wanted to go out and, and uh, use it for American power. The other group being the internationalists who saw this larger picture and were not committed to to U.S. interests so much. And I wonder if there could be a parallel now where the people who launched this attack on China and Iran, the Pompeo and Bolton-style neocons, uh, would have been the equivalent of of the, the nationalists back then wanting to keep the nukes uh, just for America. And then there might be a more liberal internationalist and perhaps Malthusian uh, wing that also might have seen that if this attack were indeed uh, contained inside China and Iran and were successful, that it would not only look very bad for the U.S., uh, but China would probably retaliate, Iran might even as well, and that that group might actually have thought that, number one, they they can cover their tracks by spreading it worldwide. Number two, they can accomplish a lot of their other objectives, which actually do include uh, depopulation. I think there is some evidence that there are um, Malthusian individuals and groups that have been around for a long time, who have perhaps been surreptitiously trying to control global, global population and who believe that the total global population should be much, much smaller than it is. So uh, maybe, what, what do you think of that and these other hypotheses that would question your thesis that this was just sort of accidental blowback from a U.S. attack on, on these other two countries? Well, I'm skeptical
1: of some of those things. And obviously that ties in also with the whole notion of, uh, and l- quite a lot of people have said that uh they think maybe all of this was simply designed to get Donald Trump out of office, in other words, to damage the American economy or American society so severely with lockdowns or with other you know economic disruption that Donald Trump would be defeated for reelection and, and i 'm really quite skeptical of that sort of analysis i mean uh, for one thing, you know when you look at basically what happened in the time leading up to the release of the virus the fact that america under robert cadillac had spent eight months coordinating its federal and state authorities planning on how to protect american society from spillover if a mysterious respiratory virus suddenly appeared in china you know i mean that eight months of planning it didn't work but you know, on the other hand, it does seem to indicate that they were making an effort to protect american society i I think really, the reason the virus spread in the United States the way it did was really more government incompetence rather than anything else. in other words, the c d c ended up botching the production of a testing kit, so initially, for several months there was no way for American authorities really to check whether the virus was spreading or not. It was very difficult to determine who was infected. And then when you look at the lockdowns, again, there's quite a lot of uh, speculation going around that the lockdowns were part of some long-range planning strategy to devastate the American economy and uh, increase the uh, wealth of the wealthiest segment that was invested in high-tech and uh, Amazon and companies like that to destroy small business in America. The lockdowns actually began in my part of the country. Basically, there's one woman, a woman named Sarah Cody, who's the public health officer of Santa Clara County. And as the virus was spreading in January and February and The beginning of March in parts of the United States, including here in Silicon Valley, she actually got together with the other public health officers from the Bay Area, the five of them. And I mean, she was very, you know, nobody really ever heard of her before. I mean, who's ever heard of a public health officer? I mean, she wasn't a prominent figure, but she and the other public health officers in the region decided that they need to, that since the government, since Donald Trump and the people around him were just ignoring the spread of the virus, they desperately needed to take some action to control it. And since lockdowns had worked in China, and since the Chinese had seeming seemed to be fairly successful in stamping out the virus in Wuhan and Hubei province and other parts of China through massive lockdowns, they decided that the only approach they could take would be to implement lockdowns here in the Silicon Valley area. So those were the first lockdowns in the United States. And then after a few days, they were then copied in Los Angeles. And a few days later, they actually were copied throughout the rest of California and then in New York City. But, I mean, if not for Sarah Cody and a few of these local public health officers, it's not at all clear whether America would have actually implemented lockdowns.
0: Now, and, do, you st- do you still think those lockdowns saved uh, huge numbers of lives? Because I know you you published a piece early on suggesting that Sarah Cody might have saved, I forget, the number of of lives. A million lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah <a> million lives. <laughs> well, so we would have over two million deaths if it weren't for her.
1: Well, that, that's the whole thing. In other words, the lockdowns were potentially effective. But the problem is, the reason the Chinese lockdown succeeded is that they were extremely strict and harsh lockdowns. So in other words, everybody was locked down. Hundreds of millions, I believe 700 million Chinese were locked down for a period of a few weeks. And that was sufficient to stamp out the virus, after which life went back to normal in China. And, you know, it's been pretty much normal since then, except last few months there have been some additional lockdowns the problem with the California lockdowns or the American lockdowns is they were much more leaky in other words they weren't nearly as strict as the Chinese lockdowns so we had the lockdowns but the virus still continued to spread and the problem is you know as in hindsight you can say the lockdowns really weren't very effective at all because basically what happened was I think by now the estimates are that probably 50, 60, 65 percent of the entire American population has been infected by the virus. So that's pretty much what would have happened if we hadn't had the lockdowns. Now, you know, it's possible that the lockdowns were successful in um, causing the virus infections to sort of be spread out over time without overwhelming the healthcare system. So it's possible that they probably saved some lives. But I mean, in a sense, I mean. Probably over a million Americans have died, regardless of the lockdown, so.
0: And, and this, this raises the issue of the people doing eight months planning Crimson Contagion, Cadillac and his friends. Um, certainly, if they thought they were preparing the U.S. biodefense sector for this, uh, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, how they, they thought they were, they were doing that effectively, given that apparently they didn't stop to think about how in a society like China, It's much easier to actually conduct these really strict lockdowns and contain this type of virus, whereas in the U.S. it obviously wouldn't be so easy. And and then, of course, you mentioned the lack of testing kits. For goodness sake, if they're spending eight months drilling this bioattack that they're about to launch against China and Iran, and they're concerned about the blowback, and so they're spending eight months drilling it for it, why in the world wouldn't they set up to have testing kits available? See, this is where your, your your thesis starts to make these people look even stupider than I can even imagine them possibly being.
1: Well, one thing to keep in mind is I personally doubt that any of the people involved in the Crimson Contagion exercise, or almost any of them, were aware that there was going to be a biowarfare attack against China or Iran. In other words, my under my scenario, The number of people involved in actually planning the attack was probably a very small handful of people, probably four or five people, something like that. Right, right.
0: but those people should have made sure that there were going to be testing kits.
1: Right, but uh, the the whole thing about it is, you know, they probably didn't expect it to really come back and hit the United States much anyway. In other words, the SARS-1 epidemic had, you know, come up in China in 2002, 2003. People in the rest of the world have been very frightened. There had been concerns it might spread to the United States, but never spread here. Not a single American died. It really ended up being confined to China. The MERS epidemic that appeared in, I think, 2007, 2008 in the Middle East, again, it killed large numbers of people in the Middle East. It never spread to Europe. It never spread to the United States. So, you know, since those two previous coronavirus epidemics, had never reached the United States, there probably was a belief, you know, the same thing would happen with this one. In other words, it would end up being confined to China, possibly a few other countries bordering China, and obviously if we hit Iran, it would be confined to Iran. But there probably was a tremendous amount of overconfidence that since those previous epidemics had never reached the United States that this one wouldn't either. And so, you know, what I think probably would have happened is that the conspirators said, well, you know, let's play it doubly safe. And let's sort of suggest to various people in the administration, that there's always the risk of a virus suddenly appearing in China or somewhere else. And so we should have some planning exercises. But I really doubt that, for example, there's really no certainty in my mind that someone like Robert Cadillac was actually among the conspirators involved in planning the bio-warfare attack. So it's perfectly possible that neither he nor any of the other officials in the Crimson Contagion exercise were aware that they were actually working on something that might have real-world consequences in the very near future. And It was just one of these planning exercises. Now bureaucracies go through a lot of planning exercises all the time. And it's very rare that any of them are actually, you know, directly impacted in the world in the near future. So, you know, it could be they didn't really take it that seriously. But it's more that, you know, the fact that we did have eight months of planning exercises aimed at protecting the United States, wargaming how we would protect the United States from leakage with a dangerous Chinese respiratory virus if it appeared and something like that appeared so immediately afterwards, just a couple of months later, just raises all sorts of extreme suspicions regarding timing. Absolutely. And, you know, and uh, my scenario also applies. Uh, my, my reasoning also applies to these various other things. Like there's the event 201 uh scenario that people have talked about a lot. I think organized by the World Economic Forum, various other international planning events aimed at potentially coping with dangerous viral outbreaks in the rest of in the rest of the world and how, you know, the individuals involved would protect their countries from those outbreaks. My speculation would be that the individual conspirators involved in planning the spy warfare attack probably would have decided to sort of, you know, take the people in their orbit and suggest to them that there's always the danger of a virus breaking out somewhere. Don't forget the SARS epidemic that occurred in China, you know, a dozen years earlier. And so for those circ- for those reasons, they really simply encourage these international bodies to consider planning for dangerous viral outbreaks without any of the people involved being aware that you know some of the people that they knew might actually be planning to launch a biowarfare attack of that type. So, you know, there's a tremendous difference between these sort of general plans that are taking place with these international organizations or, you know, for example, you know, somebody like the head of the World Health Organization saying that there's a high likelihood of a dangerous virus sometime appearing in the future. And something where the timing is so extremely coincidental that it really raises a strong likelihood of foreknowledge on somebody's part. And that's why, you know, the Crimson Contagion exercise, which was eight months of planning for a dangerous Chinese respiratory virus, followed just a couple of months later by exactly that sort of virus appearing in China in the real world, seems much more suspicious to me than these more general Plans by the World Health Organization or other international bodies, or the uh, World Economic Forum, which you know are perfectly reasonable things for these organizations to have done over the previous few years.
0: Well, I largely agree, and and one of one of the reasons that uh, your scenario makes even more sense with a bioattack like this uh, than it might with other kinds of military action is that biological attacks can be launched by such small numbers of people with plausible deniability to the point that maybe they're even invisible to chains of command. As you suggested, it looks like Trump probably wouldn't have known about this. And uh, that um, also applies to any kind of thesis about the deliberate blowback when I mentioned earlier that there might have been uh, some individual or group that actually wanted uh, the blowback it wouldn't have to be any substantial bureaucracy or large number of people because these biological attacks theoretically can come from very few people and it becomes very difficult to identify who did them, as we know from the anthrax attack, uh, which clearly came from the U.S. bioweapons sector, um, almost certainly Patel Memorial uh, Laboratories in Ohio. And yet the two people that the U.S. government pointed the finger at very likely are innocent, and we probably still don't know precisely who was behind that 2001 anthrax deception, as Grandma Queen's uh, book title has it. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think your, your scenario makes good sense, and the general suspects here uh, all come out of the neoconservative school of thought, which is a very hard-line militaristic school uh, some links to Zionism, but also on the record is wanting to maintain the American century, the new American century, and prevent the rise of any potential challenger to U.S. power. As in the Wolfowitz Doctrine, the 9-11 and Anthrax uh, suspected perpetrators are coming from that ideological camp. And likewise, it seems to me, the likely COVID perpetrators under your scenario. And now we're in a war in Ukraine where the same school of thought seems to be trying to weaken and ultimately perhaps break up Russia by way of setting a bear trap uh, like Afghanistan was in the 80s, and then uh, deal with China in order to maintain U.S. supremacy under the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Uh, I'm wondering about your thoughts about this continuity between the 9-11 and anthrax deceptions, the apparent COVID bioattack, and the war in Ukraine.
1: Oh, I mean, I think there's a very clear connection there. And, in fact, one of the – probably the strongest argument anyone has raised against my hypothetical scenario is that they say they can't believe that even rogue elements of the American national security establishment and the Trump administration would have been so incredibly reckless and foolhardy as to launch bio attacks against China and Iran in these ways. In other words, that's the only argument they really make on the other side, that they can't believe anybody could have been that reckless. You know, that's but exactly that's
0: what Pat it. Buchanan said to me uh, when I uh, mentioned Cheney in 9-11. I can't believe my friend Dick Cheney would do such a thing.
1: Yeah, and but I mean, look at the situation in Ukraine right now. I mean, for example, the Russians have been claiming for several months right now that they have direct solid evidence that America had been funding the creation of biowarfare laboratories close to the Russian border developing systems for launching biowarfare attacks against Russia now i mean Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal it's even bigger than the American nuclear arsenal Russia can incinerate the American population and when you look at for example victoria nuland's testimony before congress she pretty much admitted the existence of those biowarfare labs and uh, you know i mean basically when you i mean the more and more people now i mean tucker carlson on his show Gr- glenn greenwald wrote a column about it afterwards i mean there seems to be fairly strong evidence that the russians are telling the truth and that America was funding the creation of biowarfare facilities aimed against Russia in Ukraine, close to the Russian border. Now, that's an extraordinarily reckless and foolhardy action for America to take against the world's leading nuclear power. And countries or groups that take extremely reckless and foolhardy action in one area of (laughs) biowarfare are certainly much more reasonably suspected of doing something similar in other cases, so in other words, we 're talking about basically bio warfare facilities being developed to attack Russia, and strong evidence that bio warfare attacks were also launched against Iran and against China in the in a few months you know in the year or two prior to that so I mean overall, all of this really fits together, I think very effectively and I mean, we're talking about basically you know a group of you know these deep state neocons or whatever you want to call them. I mean people basically were extraordinarily reckless in their behavior, and um I mean now you know we're still on the brink of a military confrontation with Russia right now in ukraine. I mean you know when you take, for example, someone like the late Stephen Cohen, a leading Russian scholar, you know as of four or five years ago he was really arguing that America was closer to nuclear war with Russia than we'd been even during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was four or five years ago. I mean, think where we are right now. uh, Where America's intelligence operatives in the front page of the New York Times stories are bragging that we are... We are supporting the Ukrainians in assassinating Russian generals. I mean, can you imagine the American intelligence apparatus is bragging to the New York Times that we are assassinating Russian generals in a war on the Russian border? I mean, that was something that would have been unimaginable during the old Cold War against the Soviet Union. Because, I mean, we had leadership at the time that realized that it's very unwise to take actions that could risk a nuclear war. Well, that's exactly what we're doing right now in the Ukraine.
0: Well, why do you think we've somehow gotten this incredibly reckless leadership now, post-Cold War, when when during the Cold War there was a kind of a, a real threat uh, and ide- ideology that, with some reason, uh, the majority of Americans did not appreciate uh, that was was in fact dedicated to spreading uh, around the world and uh, we fa- you know faced uh, adversaries who really were uh, a, a threat to uh, US interests and today it seems that the real life threat from countries like Russia China and Iran is much lower and yet the uh, aggression And and, and sheer (laughs) reckless depravity of the people running our foreign policy is so much higher. What, What explains that? Well, I think it's
1: the old phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, America, in a sense, became the world's supreme power, with no peer competitor, with no rival. And that led to the sort of the sort of arrogance of power, the sort of feeling that America could do anything anywhere in the world without taking into account the logical consequences. And so, I mean, uh, when, when you look at, for example, the way America's behaved in the last 20 years, starting endless wars, attacking other countries, taking Extremely reckless action I mean not only you know in foreign countries but I mean domestically right now I mean the fact that we've inflated our currency I mean we're, we're really wrecking the American economy right now I mean so we have a generation of leaders who came of age when they believed that America could do anything anywhere in the world to any other country and no one could dare challenge us and while they were sort of wrapped up in their arrogance Other countries, I mean, China basically suddenly became a power that is certainly the rival of the United States. Under Putin, Russia rebuilt its technologies, and actually Russia in many ways is superior militarily to the United States with their hypersonic missiles and weapons. I mean, the problem is, though the fact that we are not the uniquely all-powerful country in the world – is something these individuals have a very hard time recognizing and accepting, and that's obviously the reason that you know we basically provoked the uh, Ukraine war against Russia in terms of hoping to sort of damage or debilitate Russia and regain our supremacy and then possibly encircle China. But it clearly hasn't worked. I mean, it's been a disastrous geopolitical mistake. I mean, when you look at, for example, someone like John Mearsheimer, who's very hostile towards China and regards China as being our primary international adversary, you know, from that perspective, a very logical thing to do is for America to basically become much more friendly towards Russia, to enlist Russia as an ally. And instead, we've done the exact opposite. We've basically made Russia our sworn enemy. And, you know, now we've pushed Russia and China into an alliance together, together with Iran as well. So, I mean, what what we have done because of our incredible arrogance and incredible recklessness is to push the major countries in the world that are not controlled by the United States into an anti-American alliance, including Russia, including China, including, to some extent, Iran, now even including India because of our arrogance. And so, you know, with... These large and powerful other countries, all forming a coalition against the United States, our power has very clearly been checked. And uh, I mean, it's just a very bizarre sort of thing that we've done. I mean, we've behaved in such an irrational way in the last 20 years since 9/11, but especially the last few years. That I, I think, you know, future historians, assuming the world doesn't get blown up will really point to this as one of the most disastrous strategic mistakes any major country has ever taken. I mean, to push Russia and China together, where they complement each other so effectively. I mean, Russia basically has massive national resources, and China has massive industry. And together, they really are a very, very formidable power. We have created the Russia-China bloc.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, if if I were a professional paranoid conspiracy theorist, as I've been accused of being, I might wonder whether somebody working against the United States had created the neoconservative movement. You know, I remember back in the in the day when James Angleton was running the counterintelligence division of the CIA, he was supposedly uh, becoming paranoid. And uh, believing that there were, there was a mole, a high level mole had infiltrated U.S. intelligence and was working against us. And uh, this posed a grave threat to national security. And he embarked on a mole hunt that greatly weakened the CIA and the country. And at the end of the day, it looks like if there was a mole, it would have been him. And so today, uh, one almost has to wonder whether these neocons, who blew up the Twin Towers on 9-11, uh, launched the anthrax attack, all of this weakening the United States in so many ways, uh, leading to these wars against countries that we had absolutely no interest in going to war against and, and spending $7 trillion plus for these wars, squandering our soft power and reputation, and, and then moving on to this COVID debacle that you've described and this Ukraine debacle that you've described, uh, if there were an enemy to the United States that could somehow infiltrate the policy-making apparatus, uh, how could they do a better job than these <laughs> neocons have done?
1: Oh, I agree with you there. And, and the really bizarre and ironic thing is these crazy policies, which are so counterproductive to American strategic interests, now control both the Democratic and the Republican parties. I mean, basically, the one thing the two parties agree on is that China and Russia are both our enemies, and that we have to push them together into an anti-American coalition. I mean, it's utterly bizarre. I mean, it, it's sort of it, – you really have to look long and hard for any major country in, the, in history, in modern history, to have taken such incredibly counterproductive actions – as to push Russia and China together the way America has. And it's, I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And, I mean, we've also devastated our own economy. I mean, right now we have the highest inflation by most estimates we've had in 40 years. Some people claim it's the highest inflation we've ever had because of our reckless spending and because of all these supply chain problems. I mean, we're basically you know we, i mean we've really almost wrecked the american economy right now and we have a stock market bubble but once the stock market bubble collapses i mean you have all the you have crazy cryptocurrency nonsense and everything like that i mean once we finally have a collapse of the stock market bubble I think America will be in a very, very difficult financial position internally. And, I mean, again, we've broadened ourselves. I mean, when you look at, for example, gasoline prices being so high, the reason they're high is for preventing the Russians from exporting their gasoline. It, you know, what, what we're, in effect, doing, it, it's... You know, I mean, it's the, price you know, supports after, for Russian I, <laughs> Russian gas I, I know it, it, it's just crazy what we're doing. I mean, you know, when you look at, for example, what happened after the um, after the seventy three war, because of America's support for Israel, you had uh, the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia and the other Arab countries basically embargoing oil to the United States. And imagine what would have happened if in 73 it had not been the Saudis embargoing oil shipments to the United States, but if America had embargoed Saudi oil.
0: I mean, that's what we've done. Well, some think Kissinger actually did that uh, on purpose in order to create the petrodollar.
1: Oh, uh, right. I mean, there, there are various theories about what happened. But, I mean, you know, clearly what we've done right now is bolster the Russian economy by raising oil prices. and I mean, basically the ruble is now stronger than it was before we implemented all these sanctions against Russia. I mean, we've also, because of these crazy sanction policies, we've basically destroyed the segment of the Russian elites who were most in our influence. In other words, all of these billionaires, the oligarchs, I mean, they were the elements of the Russian elite that were most under Western influence and that gave us some influence in Russian society. And we've basically devastated them. I mean, we've cut off our own potential supporters in Russia. And I mean, in a sense, in fact, quite a lot of people more aligned with other elements of the Russian camp have really said that, Putin probably is very happy with what we've done because we've finally destroyed the power of the Russian oligarchs that he himself really would not have been able to destroy. I mean, we've basically confiscated their yachts, we've confiscated their bank accounts, we've basically destroyed them. And, I mean, those were the only Russians that we had influence over. So, I mean, it's really just utterly bizarre what America has done. And in the same way, for example, we basically... Have you know made it very clear to the Chinese that they have to develop replacement technologies and that they can't count on the West. In other words, you know, we at some point in the future could cut them off from all of these technologies. So the Chinese are now making a tremendous effort to develop a domestic bio, uh, a domestic microchip industry that will be completely self-sufficient and insulated from Western pressure. So I mean, uh, just. We're, It's just unbelievably counterproductive, all of these things we've done. But, you know, we're living in the West right now, so we'll have to see the consequences of it.
0: Right. And so in terms of pushing back against this, uh, a few years ago you published a very interesting article arguing that everybody who is uh, concerned with these issues, especially the ones that are too big for the mainstream to talk about, should – recognize that our primary enemy is the mainstream media itself and so we should join together overlook the differences of opinion with um, amongst those of us who are pushing back against uh, the mainstream on these issues and kind of unite to beat up on the mainstream media and i think you're absolutely right i think i was pretty much doing that even before you formulated it in that article and uh, today i wonder if that strategy still has promise, or will we have to scramble and improvise something, um, if and when the economic collapse uh, changes the, uh, the the game board? Uh, wh- what do you think we should be doing strategically now, in in terms of uh, trying to push back against these completely insane forces that you've described?
1: Well, I, I still probably would hold with my view that. The mainstream media, the establishment media, must be the primary target of all individuals and all groups that are opposed to the status quo. In other words, the media, is, the, the media is what has to be defeated before any of these other ideas can come out. And so in other words, even if individuals may strongly disagree with each other, about what direction the country should go or what the problems are, even which areas the media is most wrong in. I, I think effort has to be made to completely discredit the media. And once the media has been weakened, that obviously allows all these other ideas to gain cra- traction. And, you know, the, I think probably the be- most effective way of striking blows against the media is to focus on issues or facts that can be brought to the attention of people and it can be pointed out to them that the media completely ignores them i mean you know give you the, the most extreme example to the extent that you know my biowarfare hypothesis were more widely known and more widely believed and if people started really thinking it probably was true or possibly true even 20 or 30% chance it's true They really would have to begin asking themselves, why has the media ignored all these facts? And once you can point to a sufficient number of issues where the media simply ignored the reality of the situation has covered something up, I I think the end result is that the media becomes sufficiently discredited that people are willing to accept other hypotheses that the media ignores. And that's, um, I, I've just, uh, as we mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation, I've just come out with hard copy editions, uh, collections of some of, my art, some of the articles in my American Providence series. And the first uh, issue, that, the first uh, collection I came out with, a really slim volume, contains the first articles in my American Providence series, which really was primarily started after I came across the work of Sidney Schoenberg, who, uh, I mean, a really very prominent journalist. He'd been a top editor at the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner, winner of two George Polk Awards. He'd written the classic Vietnam War story, The Killing Fields, which they then made into an Oscar-winning movie and made him one of the most famous journalists in the United States. So, I mean, a very, very prominent, mainstream, respectable, highly regarded journalist. And he ended up... Then in the early 1990s, discovering the reality of the Vietnam POWs, in other words, the fact that uh, Hanoi, North Vietnam, after the end of the Vietnam War, did very likely keep back hundreds of American POWs and uh, basically demand that America pay the money that we'd promised them during the Vietnam peace talks. So the fact that you know he ended up shocking me, when I read those articles by him and the fact that nobody in the media was able to even refer to the, all the evidence he had on that shocking story, really one of the biggest scandals of the second half of the 20th century with, with John McCain having been one of the key figures involved in the cover up the fact that somebody of that standing, that media credibility had assembled at, enormous mountain of evidence in favor of this gigantic scandal, and nobody in the media was willing to cover it, that really was one of the things that made me think that if something like that could be hidden by the media, many other things might be hidden as well. And that's really what persuaded me to start writing my American Providence series. So to the extent that I've been able to come up with a lot of these articles, or certainly lots of other people have as well major stories ignored by the media if individuals then start seeing those stories could be ignored they they naturally should start thinking that you know quite possibly other stories could be ignored as well and the combination of all those things i i think makes the media much more vulnerable and much weaker and people start to think that there might be many other things going on right now that the media simply ignores including, you know, all of these controversial issues having to do with Russia and China and the Ukraine war and other things like that.
0: Yeah, I I think that's true. Although I think that to some extent, um, many of us had already been following your strategy uh, for quite some time, especially in the wake of 9-11. And by weakening the credibility of the mainstream media to a certain extent, we opened the door for Trump to win the presidency by beating up on the media and in Ways that in some ways, some of them were actually even crazier than, than the media's, uh, position on things. Uh, and, and now the left liberal kind of dominant intellectual milieu has been herded into support for insane U.S. policies in, in, against Russia and China and, uh, silence on, on the COVID attack. And so in other words, they're herded into extreme conformity and lapping up the mainstream narrative by the demonization of Trump, who was elected by those of us or perhaps to some extent thanks to those of us who bashed the mainstream media enough that a lot of people didn't believe it anymore. So I think it's a, it's a very complex and volatile uh, situation. It's it's not something that's easily predictable how things are going to play out. But I think overall, um you're obviously you've got you've got your strategy makes a lot of sense uh in the long term as really the, the only available one. Uh so that book is Encountering American Pravda, essays in in a historical counter narrative it's available on amazon and i will link it at the radio blog which people can find by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the radio link and then also your other book is our COVID-19 catastrophe was the epidemic the result of a biowarfare blowback. So both of these are now available in paperback, very reasonably priced, uh, especially considering the explosive and very well-reasoned and and condensed information in in these books. So congratulations, Ron. Um, I, I appreciate your terrific work. And I've already ordered both of these books, and I hope a lot of other people will, too.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. And it seems to me one advantage of putting them in book form is if somebody, for example, orders a copy for a friend of his, it's unlikely that the person would just toss it in the trash without at least taking a look at it. And once you start taking a look at it, one thing might lead to another it could be somebody's perspective will really be changed on these historical events. So, you know, that's one reason I wanted to price them very reasonably so that people could buy them for friends of theirs and that sort of thing.
0: Okay, well, if you have any uh, open-minded or halfway intelligent friends, uh, consider (laughs) sending them copies of the book. Well, thanks so much, Ron. It was great uh, talking with you and catching up with you and uh, appreciate your fantastic work and I hope it it staves off a doomsday and or the next uh, neocon act of insane. And recklessness. Uh, all we can do is, is, is pray and say inshallah for that. Well, thanks so much, Ron. Take care. Hey, well, thanks a lot okay. for having me. <laughs> bye, bye.